The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. On the line now, Davina Montgomery, good morning. Good morning, Mitch. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm just reading a tweet here from a journalist and it says, uh, what a difference a week makes because this time last week... Uh, we were still about two hours away from learning about these Sydney removalists and now uh, a week later here we are in lockdown and she also points out that this time last week we're enjoying our 11th day in a row of no new COVID cases in Victoria. It is absolutely extraordinary the pace that that this virus moves at and and, you know, encouragingly, the, the pace that we're responding now, I think, Mitch, I mean, that's, you know, it's hard. We're in lockdown again. None of us wanted to be here. Um, God, I really hope that this is the last one. I'd like to think that it's the last one. But this I think we this said that two lockdowns response, ago. Oh, I know. I feel like, and I feel like I'm starting to think maybe it's you and me, Mitch, to be honest, because every time I feel like we come back on every two weeks, there's a change. So yes. I'm getting concerned about that. But you know, I know that we're both being very COVID safe, so I hope that that's not the case. Um, but look, it does, it just changes fast. And, you know, we talk about resilience and all of those sort of things that we that we talk about in the broader community and particularly where we talk about kids and building resilience into them. But damn, you know, haven't we all got resilient in the face of absolutely lack of, un, uh, lack of certainty in where we're going to be next week? But I feel like we're a bit more confident in what we have to do about it. Well, that's true. We certainly know by now what we have to do about it. But uh, what is concerning, as I was saying to John Aaron and everyone else before, is just looking at these exposure sites from Mildura down to Churchill Island. I mean, it hasn't been like that before. A lot of the time, the cases have been concentrated in metropolitan Melbourne. Yeah, I think, and I think that it says a lot about how quickly this virus can be transmitted, how quickly it's appearing. Um, Because previously, no, we haven't had this pace of cases moving in such a widespread. But at the same time, we have had it spread. It's just taken longer to appear. So uh, we're certainly seeing that it's much easier to catch this virus now. We know that just passing someone um, is enough to make you catch this virus standing behind them in a queue. You know, we're seeing that at at the South Melbourne market, these... These are just when they, you know, I'm trying not to use the word fleeting transmission because good grief, do we all need to hear it again? <laughs> um, but it really does, you know, it really is this case of if you're sharing the air, and, I, and I'm going to go back to that analogy that I think we spoke about quite a long time ago when we talk about an aerosol virus is that, you know, if, if you think about when people talk about an aerosol virus, if you're standing outside and you can smell someone smoking at a distance away from you, you're breathing in their air. So it's that same thing again. It, that's how, how virulent this and how easily transmissible this virus is. Uh, what we do know works is masks. We, you know, it's a simple thing. We can make it work. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a huge non-fan of walking the dog with a mask on, but we know it works. And the fact that, you know, we had this, this case of us going back into offices without masks, as frustrating as that is, um, I think that's the thing that's really going to help save us from this in the long run and you know poor it'll be very interesting to see what happens in britain at the moment because of course today's freedom day the 19th of july over there it's you know it's celebration day it's freedom day masks are no longer mandatory people can make their choice about masks people are asked to socially distance but there's no restrictions or restrictions lifted and yet cases are rising by 50,000 a day we've got the prime minister of the country in isolation the health minister um I think has tested uh, tested positive or been a close contact. I haven't quite caught exactly onto that, but 
you know, the, these are extraordinary times. And it, we know in Britain that the, the vaccination rate has been very high, was very fast response to their vaccination program. Um, quite the opposite to us, a, a terrible way of managing the virus, but really, really good vaccine rollout. Of course, we've had we've managed this virus really, really well, but have had a terrible vaccine mm. rollout. But it just shows you that, you know, we're, we're pinning our hopes on things in a shifting environment. We all thought that once the vaccinations came through that that was going to make such a huge difference. And it still will. It still will prevent those those surging cases into hospital, those surging death rates that we are all so horrified by, particularly last year and in parts of the world right now. Um, but the case in Britain is an interesting one because it's showing us this, this rhetoric that we keep hearing about we need to live with this virus, we need to find a way to manage it. Well, let's have a look at what happens in Britain over the next couple of weeks because at the moment... They're living with the virus. Anyone who comes into contact with it is asked to social, is asked to isolate for 10 days. It's causing absolute havoc across businesses and schools and workplaces. They've had train lines shut down because they can't get people to work there because they're all self-isolating. They can't get teachers into school because they're having to, to, to self-isolate because, of course, there is this freedom of movement. And when there's freedom of movement, there is freedom of virus. Well, people listening to this program would say, why is it that the UK is going into Freedom Day when they're having more cases each day than what we've had in the entire pandemic here in Australia? Uh, Is it because the vaccination program means that when people do get a case, that the symptoms are quite mild? I think that that's exactly what it is, Mitch. I mean, and not everyone we, we need to say, you know, they're still looking at, I think, you know, death rates of around 25 so this isn't a small thing was it 25 people a day i i don't believe it's 25 a day um i'd have to go back and find that story i believe it was 25 in the past week perhaps i'll check yeah it would be good to find those numbers but it it is still a is still a deadly virus even when people are vaccinated that's why we talk about those those efficacy rates of preventing severe disease of being up to say 90 percent that still means that 10 percent of people are still going to experience severe disease not everyone can be vaccinated and, and people will die from this disease as they do from the flu um but i think one thing we have learned now is that while the future of this virus in the community might be like a flu uh, at the moment, it is very much not the flu, and I've heard I've had people say it to me. Oh, look, it's just the flu now. We need to we need to act like it. Well, it isn't. I'm sorry, but the numbers tell us that it's not. Its virulence tells us that it's not the amount of people who die from this, and particularly the people who have those long running impacts of COVID and what that does to their health over the long term. We still don't know, but we know in the short term it could certainly be incredibly debilitating. Um, and hugely have a huge impact on people's lives. So we can't treat this like the flu because it ain't. So the UK deaths on the 17th of July, so two days ago, one day ago over there, uh, 41 deaths. On the 16th, 49 deaths. Uh, 50 deaths the day before. So, uh, yeah, they won't. So, unfortunately, we are talking, yeah, we are talking about daily cases. Now, just transport that to here. I mean, the UK has a higher population than Australia. It's also got a much more higher vaccination rate. Would we be comfortable with that? Would we be okay with saying, okay, well, we're looking at, you know, 10 people dying a day from this virus? I doubt it. Is that what we want? Because I think that's the reality. For anyone who's thinking about running that argument, and it is widespread, it certainly has been made to me many times, and I'm sure to you as well, Mitch, and it would be too to everyone who's listening out there today. For every person who's standing there or who's having that conversation saying, we just need to learn to live with this virus, that's what you're saying. Are you happy to live with that? And are you happy if it's someone in your family? Are you okay with that? Are you yeah, going to I be able to live with that? Yeah, I think that's a challenge, that? isn't it? If it's uh, 20 people, that's one thing. But if it's uh, 
someone from your family, someone that you know, a lifelong friend, suddenly it's a very different situation when it hits closer to home, and that's human nature. People are selfish. Yeah, I think so, Mitch, but but I also think we have great capacity for compassion and empathy, and um, I think we've learnt so much about this virus. We've learnt so much about ourselves as people and what we're willing to do to protect the people around us, and there is no greater sacrifice than what we're seeing in Victoria and, and New South Wales right now. But um, let's keep it close to home and look at what Victorians have sacrificed, like well over 100 days in lockdown, huge impacts on business, on incomes, on people's lives, on our kids and their education. These are sacrifices that we're all making so that that living with the virus doesn't mean losing people that we love. Um, how do we persuade people to get the vaccine? I'm just thinking about this and the way that the campaigns are rolling out. But when you've got people that are sitting on the fence, uh, what is going to persuade them is very different to the general populace. How do you convince someone to get vaccinated? I know last week we were talking on the program about how there was a recommendation that they should stop showing needles going into arms. And I think that's probably a fair point for someone who is legitimately needle sitting ready. on the fence. Um, showing someone getting a needle in their arm is probably not going to make them go that extra leap to uh, actually go and get it. I think showing photos of hairy arms is probably not a great thing either. I don't. What do you think? What would persuade those people that are, you know, one way or the other, fifty-fifty coin toss? I think there has been some great, um, some great examples of how this can be communicated really well. And if you've seen the the New Zealand ad, uh, I think was a fantastic one. There was actually a really nice series that was in the UK that was a bit more of a star-studded you know, call to arms, Elton John and the like, standing there telling people how they had been vaccinated and why. I think much more of a focus on communicating the people who had been vaccinated. Um, I'm fully vaccinated now, but everyone I've spoken to, I think the first question that they ask is, how did you feel after the vaccination? Mm. There is real fear because of the way that this the vaccination uh, program on both of these vaccinations has been communicated means that I think there's really genuine fear out there about what the implications of having that vaccination might be. And I think that's really fair. You know, I don't think we, any of us have the right to turn around and, and have a go at someone for being afraid of something or being concerned about something, being a bit anxious about something. That's entirely fair. So it really is, is up to um, all of us, but also, again, to... The, the people who stand in those leadership positions into our governments, into our health departments, to find a better way to change that conversation. And, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the way that New Zealand does their public messaging because it's normally hilarious and generally very, very, very well done. Um, and they have a great a great video that's out there about, you know, young people sharing the love and how they've been vaccinated. And it, it is entirely a video all about the people that you love and why people take this vaccination. And it isn't just for yourself. And we know this about vaccination. We know that not everyone can be vaccinated. For instance, you know, we a baby comes into the family, members of the family go and get a whooping cough vaccination because they don't want that baby to die of whooping cough. Um, we know that there are people who can't have all of the vaccinations, but, you know, we don't want measles killing our kids. We don't want, you know, older people dying of the flu in huge numbers, which they would if we didn't have a flu vaccine every year. So we don't just vaccinate for ourselves. We do vaccinate for the entire population so that we can suppress these viruses. And we know that vaccination works because we do it so well.
Now, one thing I did want to talk about with you is uh, this Katie Hopkins situation where uh, she put up some controversial videos, I think, of her talking about flouting hotel quarantine or at least uh, making things a bit scary for the hotel quarantine staff. She was brought in, I believe, by Channel 7 to be part of their Big Brother VIP program and uh, is now um, probably having to serve out the rest of her quarantine and then we'll have to get on a plane back to the UK because I believe her visa has been cancelled. But for me, I think this just says a lot more about where free-to-air TV is these days. Because um, the sort of programs you see, it's just recycling the same ideas over and over again, passing one program from one station. In fact, just about every network has probably had Big Brother on it at one point or another, hasn't it? And um, they bring in these people that are controversial, they are clickbait, they are shock jocks, if you want to use that term, and then act surprised when they uh, behave like shock jocks. Yeah, I do wonder, um, Mitch, whether there's a, a producer or a team of producers that are sitting there um, feeling pretty chagrined this morning or whether they're celebrating a successful strategy. And it could well be a bit of both. But, you know, good grief. Yeah, I'm with you. I, it's just, look, it was an inevitable outcome. It was always going to be this way. This is the point of going after someone who's so controversial, someone who really does just push people's buttons, who garners attention by saying outrageous, ridiculous things. Um, you know, why we even let them get a visa into the country. I think we've had these conversations before about when you've had, um, you know, uh, ex- I'm going to use the word extreme commentators because it doesn't just mean the right. It can be the left as well. Um, but anywhere on the extremes can be dangerous. And we have had we have banned people from entering the country before who have extreme views that don't align with how we want the public discourse to... the parameters that we want the public discourse to be able to be had in Australia. Um, as you know, Mitch, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of people being able to say what they think. I don't think we should be silencing people. I don't think we should be necessarily cancelling people. Um, I think we need to listen when things are said, but at the same time, you need to think really carefully about the weight that you put on and the sources that are there because if it's just a free-for-all, then it's Facebook and that's a problem or it's the comments section of the Herald Sun or the City Morning Herald or one of those. Um, they're not great places to be. You know, how many people read the comment section on a Facebook, a viral Facebook feed and feel good about humanity? You just don't, do you? You know, it, it brings out the worst in people. And this is a person that brings out the brings out the worst in, in people. And, you look, you know, she's made a career out of it. That's her choice. She certainly knows what she's doing, whether she believes everything that she says or not, I don't know. Um, but she certainly gets an awful lot of attention for saying outrageous things. And that ain't anything new that's been happening for, you know, as long as there have been people, I'm sure, there's been people who've garnered attention and, and profited and benefited from being just outrageous. So that's her gig. Everyone knows it. Certainly the production team on Big Brother would have known it. They made that choice. I can't think that they would have made that choice unknowingly. So they would have been running that risk. They would have had those conversations. That said, oh, look, let's just see what happens. And, you know, the worst thing that happens if we get a bit of media, well, they certainly have. I don't necessarily have as much of a problem if someone wants to come in and uh, talk to a town hall type situation where people have paid to attend. But I think it says a lot about a network if on free-to-air TV they want to air this person. And also uh, it's the circumstances that we're currently in because hotel quarantine is very limited at the moment and rightly Mm. so. And uh, some people like Daniel Andrews I think are saying we need to limit it even more, which if uh, that means fewer lockdowns, I'm all for. So to bring in someone at the uh, expense 
defence potentially of someone who is an Australian citizen who is overseas trying to get home uh, doesn't play very well. Uh, and it doesn't feel good, does it, Mitch? It, it doesn't sit right. You know, there's, there's people who are desperate to get home. There's people for all sorts of compassionate reasons who want to see their families. There's people who've been overseas for an awful long time who are just trying to get home. And, and they know it's going to cost them a fortune to get here. Um, but they're willing to do that because they just want to get home. And yet you let, you know, someone like this clown in. So, look, it's, you know, that's fine. That's their choice. That's their business. Um, go for it if if that's what they want to do. But, yes, I think it does come back to, you're right, the, the network themselves, they've made their choice. But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we've got a closed border situation that has gaps in it for certain privileged people. Uh, and that's a problem. But how do we save, in a sense, free-to-air TV, or is it too far gone? Because I think what they're seeing is, oh, well, let's have a bit of a race to the bottom. Let's have a house uh, on video with celebrities arguing with each other from the left side of politics and the right side of politics. Is that what TV is now, or is there something we can do to make it actually more valuable to people? Because I think it seems to be contributing to its own death spiral. It can, Mitch, and yes, I, I think that that's, that's part of the problem is that when, when networks do jump in and they do go into this into this race to the bottom and that's exactly what it is, that that's a problem. But we also, I think we've seen in Australian television and particularly in Australian audiences for free-to-air that there is an appetite for different kinds of television as well and different feel to really high-rating shows. So... I mean, obviously, there's the, you know, there's the Farmer Wants a Wife and there's the, I don't know, Bachelor, Bachelorette, those sort of shows that mm. get huge ratings that, um, you know, they're, they're not sort of highbrow television, but people like them. Are they particularly nasty? I don't think so. They're not particularly edifying either, but um, for, for something that people like, that's fine, I think. You see shows like MasterChef that in Australia went down a very positive route while the rest of the world didn't, and that, that's an international franchise. It's very big. Um, it's a show that can be quite negative in other countries and, and have that really competitive kind of created drama feel about it. But in Australia, the, the take was different very early on. Um, I think the three, the original three judges sort of put their foot down and said, no, we're not going to do it like that. We want, we want to celebrate food and food culture and, and look at the way that's been embraced. Um, the shows like The Block, while yes, again, we have that manufactured element that we all see, huge ratings and a generally fairly positive sort of thing happening there um look at david attenborough the king of public television no one attracts a bigger audience than david attenborough and he creates he and his team i would say just he would be a huge team that creates it <laughs> but that series over decades and decades and decades which has huge audience numbers every every country in the world would know who david attenborough is kids in every country in the world would know who david attenborough is um and this is free-to-air television. All of those shows you mentioned, I think, except David Attenborough, were reality shows. So a reality yeah. program sort of the only format that really works to get those big audiences now? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it, um, you know, we, we see the changing times and we see shifts. And, you know, I would point to, like, there was that, that Big Brother shift really early on, I think, in that the 90s 2000s but that was also the era of shows like friends and frasier and um god i'm trying to think of an australian show that would have had similar sort of appeal um kath and kim <laughs> yes know? exactly this, this was an era of, of television where it was um 
it was about people and it was about ordinary people. Like we'd gone from that 80s, the big shoulder pads, the dynasty, the big hair, and then we moved into an era where there were shows about ordinary people living reasonably ordinary lives that garnered huge attention. So do we ever stop hearing stories about people? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think reality television has become a big thing because it's cheap. It is a cheap production to run as opposed to a drama or a comedy show or a sitcom. Um, but, you know, probably not that much cheaper now because it's become so big that it would cost you a fortune to have the hosts and the special guests and who knows how much, you know, British commentators <laughs> of a certain persuasion get paid to come over here. Mm. Um, so, and and the, the other thing is that we know how to do production now. So the, the logistics of being able to put production in place now have changed in its cost structure. I mean, you... The, the price of the equipment, the um, availability of people, that skill knowledge that we have in Australia. And in Victoria, that's huge. The amount of people, videographers, audio, uh, makeup artists, writers, producers, there's, there is a huge community of them. And we often only have a very small number of them actively working on, on a typical number of shows. So that tells me that there is a huge pool out there of very talented people with great stories and great ideas that at the moment aren't being heard. And that is exactly the same thing that, that kicked off that other great era of television a couple of decades ago, where we did see those huge big shows that changed the landscape of television. So um, I'm hopeful for TV, Mitch, because I think that we never stop wanting to watch things. I just, you know, it, it might be that free-to-air becomes much more closely aligned with social media and the way that people watch it will change. So what sort of platforms that get sent out on and how people watch it I think will change but I don't think people are ever going to want to stop I just listening think the, or watching stories the independent content creators are amazing what they do on YouTube now with um, the equipment that they have available yeah. to them and the production values that they bring to those um, programs you can watch high quality production on just about any subject that interests you and that's where I think free to air TV is at a loss well, I mean, you know, what's what's stopping free to air going in and picking into those pools and and kind of trying to find the next the next big thing because it's out there and chances are it's already actually out there. Um, it just hasn't been picked up yet. It doesn't mean that it won't be, and you know that seems a, a almost an inevitability to me that at some point the producers in the in the, the networks are going to turn their eyes onto the internet and have a real look at what sort of content is out there because you're right it's already out there it's already in production it's being produced at at you know quite affordable prices which means that the advertising revenue that comes on the back of it doesn't need to be huge in the way that it does for a lot of television um you know you don't need huge big sets and and extraordinarily expensive equipment and huge big teams of people to produce to produce great uh, storytelling on film so we know that now it's certainly out there i reckon i reckon it'll happen and uh, just last of all, federal political roundup, just because we've got this news poll out today, which shows yeah. that Labor has increased its uh, two PP uh, fortunes quite substantially. It's now uh, 47.53 in favour of the Labor Party. But um, also locally, in the way that that's affecting the campaign, we've got the situation in Karangamart. You might have read over the weekend that Tom Rowe, not happy with Stephanie Asher being the Liberal candidate for Karangamart, so he's decided to now go it alone and run as an independent. So there's now a lot of interest on that seat, uh, probably more than usual, given that we don't even know when the federal election will be yet. Yeah, you know, it's it is going to be that one of those seats that we hear an extraordinary amount about on the national level. Um, you just will. It's it's becoming one of those seats, and uh, sorry, on the state level. But you're going to hear 
so much about it just because it's going to have eyes. There's going to be a lot of eyes on it. Um, you've got some big personalities in there and you've got, you know, three people when you when you sit in the incumbent that are pretty politically savvy, that have been around the circle for a long time. Um, they're reasonably young. They're different faces to what has typically been seen. I mean, we know we had Stuart MacArthur in for decades and decades, it felt like. Um, yes. So this is sort of that, that new wave and it's going to be really, really interesting to see where that goes. But like all of this, uh, like all of this, I don't know how much of the local seats will be decided on personality. I still think an awful lot of it's going to be decided on politics and politically uh, at the federal level now, we're seeing, oh, geez, the, that COVID battle it continues. And the next election, we're July now, we're looking at an early next year, it will be decided on COVID and it will be decided on the response. What that ends up being at that point, who knows? But at the moment, we certainly know that, um, that the Prime Minister and the Federal Coalition are bearing the brunt of the public voting public's anger about the vaccine rollout. So when we've seen these poll, this news poll that's come out that would be, um, you know, would be a bit of a kick in the pants up, yes. in, up in coalition party room. But at the same time, you know, that that's this news poll. There's been previous ones that have been different. There'll be ones afterwards that will be different as well. But this one is clearly a, a very clear message to the coalition and particularly to the Prime Minister that people are not happy with the vaccine rollout, people are not happy with the management of this. Um, and I don't think they did themselves an awful lot of favours with the New South Wales versus Victoria argument. Um, Dan Andrews is, is he's a you know he's a political animal and he landed a blow when he called the Prime Minister the Prime Minister of New South Wales because we're going to hear that line a lot. And yes, it's a it's a you know tacky little political line that gets thrown out there, but it will be used and repeated heavily. You can just feel it. So there's a bit of work to do for for the party, for the, uh, for the Liberal Party and for the Coalition in Canberra. They've got a lot of public faith to rebuild. And at the moment, the sway of uh, sentiment is sitting with the with the state leaders. So, I mean, yeah, obviously Gladys Berejiklian had had a, a quite extraordinary run through the COVID period. Um, he's certainly struggling now. But again, remember that we've got time that goes out ahead of that. So what happens after a lockdown is quite different to what happens when you're in it. We know that because we've been in it in Victoria what, five times now. Hmm. So we've, we've seen what happens that, you know, support will drop while you're in the lockdown, then you come out of lockdown, you see that, that weight of response and go, oh, okay, actually, no, that was pretty good. Um, so at the moment, you know, Daniel Andrews, uh, James Molino, they're, they're having a really good run because people are feeling like they've done what they needed to do and they've done what they expected. And I think we all expected this lockdown to go hard and go early, particularly when we're seeing what was happening in New South Wales. In New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian had exactly that same situation for a very long time with the voting public sort of sitting there saying how, how, what a great job she's doing. She's kept us out of lockdown. You know, she's really listening to us and looking after our interests. And then when the cases started to spiral, now it's flipped. And even to the extent that, you know, you've got the, you've got the traditionally, um, right-leaning media outlets like, you know, the the Murdoch News sitting there giving it to us, basically. You know, when you've got the Australian having a go at you about not going hard enough early enough, very different rhetoric to what has been put out in that particular outlet for a long time. But it feels, you know, now they're sitting in a situation where the expectation of what they, what they thought should have happened slipped away from that leadership decision. So I think there's a gap in that. And I think we're seeing that at the federal level as well, where what we expected to happen 
with the vaccine rollout, with the control of hotel quarantine, you know, these two big federal issues hasn't happened um, and that's been a problem. Scott Morrison will be absolutely hoping and praying that they don't get big outbreaks of, you know, or even small outbreaks, God forbid, any outbreak in aged care or disability yes, care because if it huge. does, he's in huge trouble. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. Look, thanks for being on the program once again. Always good to catch up. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. And I think we say this all the time, but hopefully in two weeks it's lockdown free. Oh, I really hope so, Mitch. I am hopeful. I'm, I'm pleased that we've gone hard, gone early. I think we're learning as we go, which is really which is really good. If we can keep those numbers, keep watching those numbers. If they get down under, under 10 and then under 5, we're in a much better place. I think we're all kind of thinking that this lockdown will extend out a few days at least, but we are talking days at the moment, not weeks. So let's hope that's the case. Well, thank you very much, Davina Montgomery, with us there um, with her insights on the issues of the day. And there's certainly plenty of issues to talk about. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.